Well, if you have a Bible or one of those scripture journals, go ahead and open it up to the second chapter of the book of Genesis. We are going to be picking it up in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and then reading through verse 17 this morning in our time in the Word. Now, that will be on page 2 if you're using uh, one of those ESV pew Bibles around the room. Now, one of the most challenging things that I have realized in preaching a book like Genesis, because Genesis not only serves as the very first book of the Bible, but as we have seen uh, through our, our first few weeks in it, it has also set up some of the, the core foundational aspects of what we know about God. What kind of power does he possess? What is his relationship with humanity? The opening chapters of the Bible communicate a great deal to us about what we will see throughout the rest of all of Scripture. Now, the challenge then is, when preaching through a book like that, is how much time do you give each chapter? Right In the pulpit, you know, my, my role here is how much time do we dedicate to each chapter or each uh, piece of content that we see in the book of Genesis? Because Genesis is one of the larger, larger books that we have in our Bible. Right? It's 50 chapters long. And truthfully, if we were to spend equal amount of time, say as we did with Genesis 1 verses 1 through 2, and did that throughout the whole book of Genesis, which we could, it would take us a few years to get through the book of Genesis. Now, I know that that's not something that you want to do in one round, okay? And I'm okay with that. But as we, as we look at the book, and here's why I bring this up. As we look at the book of Genesis, my goal in walking through that is not to be able to walk down every caveat, every detail that the text presents, but rather give us um, a, a wide understanding, what are the core aspects that Moses, who we believe is the author of Genesis from the Word of God, what is he trying to communicate? What was he trying to communicate to his original audience? But also, why has God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, allowed this to be part of the, the timelessness of Scripture for all time, for us now? And ultimately, then, what is our in what ways are we going to grow in our understanding of the person and work of Jesus? Because the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is actually all about him. It's all about him and who he is and what he has done. All of the Bible is trying to get you to understand that. Now, certainly there's other things that we're going to pull away. But the most dominant theme in all of Scripture is Jesus Christ. And we know that because that's what Jesus said. It's all about him. And so our main goal then is then to look at this text and go, not only what is the original audience understood, but what is this communicating about Christ? That's what we are really trying to, to look at, to zoom in on the person and work of Jesus. Because here's an advantage that we have, church, that the original audience did not have. Remember, the original audience was a bunch of former Egyptian slaves. They had been basically led out of Egypt by a man named Moses. Right? They were on their way to a promised land that was given to them by God when this was originally written, thousands of years ago. Right? Mo uh, Moses probably lived around between, you know, uh, around 1500, 1600 B.C. So, 
they had a certain understanding that they were, they were getting at, right? Moses was trying to communicate, who is this God that has led you out of Egypt and is leading you into the promised land? That's Moses' agenda. But we also, like I said, we have the advantage where we can actually zoom out because we don't just have the book of Genesis, right? We have all of the Bible. We have the completion of the canon. And so we get to look back at Genesis with the advantage of knowing what is to come. Let me give you an example. Have you ever watched a movie for the second time? Right? You watch the movie from beginning to end, and then, you know, maybe soon after or, or you know, years after, you re-watch that movie, and you are able to pick up things in the beginning that you never saw the first time. That's our advantage, church is we get to see how the story ends, right? We get to see that Jesus wins in the end. We get to see what God does with the sin that enters into the world. And now we get to look back on Genesis, church, and we get to see these foreshadows, these, these predictions, these highlights of Jesus to come that we may have missed the first time. That's our advantage. So... What does Genesis 2 have to do with Jesus? His name is not in that. Most of the time when we look at a chapter like Genesis 2, which is a very popular uh, passage in all the Bible, we quickly only talk about the the creation of Adam, which we will see. Or maybe we'll we'll talk about the creation of of Eve, the first woman. We talk about how Adam got to name all the animals. We get to see this basically this first wedding ceremony. But we quickly just focus in on the immediate context. And what I want to do this morning is not just do that, because I think that's important, right? We need to understand the context that we're reading at. But I'm also going to be zooming out a little bit more and showing you that what God communicated to Adam is a theme that we will see throughout all of the Bible and will culminate in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But let me go ahead and just stop there for a moment. Let me just pray one more time. Pray for us. As I pray for you, uh, will you pray for me? Uh, We just have a a wonderful task, a wonderful privilege to be able to, to learn this morning from the Word of God, and we need God's help in that. So please pray for me as I pray for you. Well, Father, thank you for just another morning that we can come and we can open up your, your word. And we believe it is your word, Lord, and we believe that it's, it's sufficient for us to know you. That it has a glorious intent just to, to build out our understanding and our love for you. And God, we need help uh, for those things to actually be experienced on any given morning such as this. So, Father, I pray that you would just illuminate the word for every man, woman, kiddo in the room. God, that you would allow just the truthfulness of who you are and what you've done uh, just to resonate or to glow or just to expand in areas of our souls that have, we have never experienced before. God, only you could do that, and we ask you to do that. Where we also want to just pray for our kiddos next door as as they are learning about the same ideas that we're learning here, about a good and gracious God who not only has demonstrated his love for them in creation, but has also been committed to them in their recreation, in their new birth. So, Lord, I pray for those teachers and those hearts. And it's under your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. 
verse 4. It'll be on the screen as well. Now let me go ahead and just read that for us. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the garden, or out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Verse 12. And the gold of that land is good, but Delium and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of the Lord, church. Thanks be to God. All right. Now, as I mentioned, my hope is to narrow in where I believe that the scripture really narrows in. And that is on the creation of man that we see at the very beginning. Specifically, the creation of Adam. And the role that is given to him. And we'll be able to trace that role, that theme, all the way to what is known as the second Adam. The second Adam, which is Jesus Christ. Where we'll see the second Adam do what the first Adam actually failed at. Hey, Lee, I think I'm pinging a little bit. I don't know if you guys can hear that. If you just want to back me down a hair. Thank you. Now, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, in Genesis 1, 3, verses 2 to 2, 3, uh, we were given that flyover creation, right? That really quick look at all the days of creation, all the ways that God created everything out of nothing, right? Where all of the earth and all of the cosmos were created. But then here in, in chapter 2, verse 4, we are entered into a new chapter, so to speak. A new chapter. Now remember, you know, those chapter and verse distinctions that we have here in our English Bible, those were not... Um, original to the author. The author did not put those in here. That was added later on into the Bible, uh, basically to give some framework to help people be able to find certain passages, much like a, like a street address. But the, those chapter verse distinctions are not inerrant, right? They're not part of the original text. But when an author did write, such as Moses, when he did write Genesis, he actually put in these different literary clues or these literary distinctions to understand that he was starting something new. We see that starting in verse 4 when it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now that word generation, um, it is, the, the Hebrew word which is really written, written in is a toledot, 
right? And it was a, a Hebrew way to distinguish almost a new chapter. And so actually, when you read through the book of Genesis, church, you actually see that there's ten of these given by Moses. Ten of these toledotes to basically mark that he is now focusing in on a different area. And here's why I bring that up. Because there has been some criticism, scholarly criticism, when it comes to the book of Genesis, that they would say that the Genesis created narrative in Genesis 2 seems to be different than chapter 1. So either there are two creation narratives, or they are in contradiction to each other. Now, that is not the case at all. And what I want to show you is rather what Moses is doing in that, that Toledot, what I explained, is what he's doing is he's, now he's, he's pulling back a little bit. He's going back to day six of creation, and he's zooming in. Where at first, we got that kind of bird's eye view of God creating, you know, the, the earth and all of the animals and humanity. Well, now Moses is going to go back and he's going to zoom in at almost a ground level view of, I want you to see the specific ways that God created humanity and what happened on those days. So starting in verse 5, we see Moses refer to God in this creation again. Reminding us that where the earth was created, but it didn't have the, the fullness or the purpose in which God intended, now he's going to be placing that in there. And so we see him talk about these plants. right? We talk about the water, this fullness that's going to be coming to the created earth. But what I want to point out, because this is actually really cool, guys. What I want to point out is all of a sudden we're actually given this new description about God. Where it says at the end of uh, verse 4 and into verse 5, where we see that when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the ground. Now previously, if you had been paying close attention, Moses described God only using the term God, Elohim. Right? We, we saw that that was a majestic title for God, a, a, a kind of a proper title for God. But yet, here, now Moses is almost shifting a little bit and saying, but it's a Lord God. So still Elohim, but that word Lord, you will see throughout the rest of Scripture, that is the proper name of God, Yahweh. Right? It's a, a personal God. It's a personal, relational God. So not just a God who decided just to create everything, to wind it up like a clock and just let it go but rather Yahweh Elohim, which is a personal, relational God who's actually involved. And so throughout the rest of the Bible, you'll see, whenever you see that word Lord capitalized, a capital L-O-R-D, it's that proper name, Yahweh, to communicate the God who we're talking about, this, this relational God who actually cares about us. And, and that might be revolutionary to some of us. It was certainly revolutionary to the original audience, right? All they had ever heard about were these little G gods, like the god of the moon, or the god of the sun, or the god of the Nile River. And those gods were never communicated as someone who actually cared about humanity. Right? Humanity was only to serve them, to try to make them happy, to try to be on their right side. It was not a personal god at all. It was a transactional god. But yet Moses here is already, he has that polemical argument, he's saying, no, 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 this God is different. 
This God cares. This God is involved. This God is relational to you. Absolutely revolutionary. I think to many of us. Because how many of us just grew up thinking that God was just this big guy in the sky? Right? Someone that we had to please. Someone that had a list of do's and don'ts. And you just had to try to figure out what you should or not should not do. But the Bible communicates a very different God. A God that certainly knows what flourishing in this life looks like. But far more than that, far more of what you do, he wants to communicate what he has done, who he is. Because what you will do will always flow out of who he is. And so we see this in these verses, and, and I want to bring this up because I want you to see that the God of the Old Testament is not some angry, distant God, and the God of the New Testament is a loving, caring God. We have one true God who has revealed himself from Genesis to Revelation and today. That's a beautiful thing, church. And that intimacy is then actually demonstrated with the creation of Adam. If you look down at verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So God didn't just speak Adam into existence like he spoke other creation into existence, but rather there's this intimate involved, that God is intimately involved in the creation of Adam. We looked at this last week with that idea that we are made in the image and likeness of God, but here we're zoomed in even more, right? We're zoomed in even more and says, no, he actually created Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him life. Now, we don't know exactly what that meant, to, to breathe in life into Adam, but whenever a scripture talks about someone who has been, the life breathed into him, this is how it explains it. That it meant that Adam had a moral capacity that no other creation had. It meant that he had an ability to know God in a way that no other creation had. An ability to actually know its creator more than any other creation. It's a reality that God takes something that is created, church, but then actually brings a fullness, a life to it, far beyond just a physical life. You tracking with that? So God breathes into this life into Adam. And just a, as a side note, I want to show you guys something. This is not the last time we see the breath of life uh, pour out onto humanity. Jesus actually does this again. Let me show you. This is over in the Gospel of John. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's praying for them. And he says this in John 20, starting in verse 21. He says, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So the breath of God is the breath of God's work in creation. It's taking what something might be physically alive, but it's bringing a fullness of life to it. And so what God does here is he's demonstrating this new creation, right? This rebirth that all of humanity needs because of sin. Now, going back to Genesis, once Adam is created, it says that he was placed into a garden. A garden that God had made. This is the Garden of Eden. 
And in verses 9 through 14, we are given some descriptors of that garden. Right? We're told about the rivers that run through it. We are told about the gold and the other riches that are there. And we are told of the trees of sustenance and beauty. And all these wonderful descriptors that all highlight different various realities, which I don't have time to go into all of them. But I do want to point out one of those things, and that is the trees, because they will play a very, actually, very important role in the story of God. So let me highlight the, the trees that we see here in the garden. We're told really about two very specific trees. And by the way, we'll see trees all over Scripture. Once, it's kind of like when you want to buy a new car or a certain car you like. You don't really notice it on the highway until you start you know, looking at it, pricing it out. And all of a sudden you see that car everywhere. That's how it's going to be with trees, church. You'll see God use this imagery of trees throughout his narrative. So the first tree that we see is the tree of life. Now what is that? Well, the tree of life symbolizes life. That's what it's meant to do. But more than that, it actually symbolizes the presence of God. The presence of God where there's this ongoing physical, spiritual, moral life. And keep that tree of life in the back of your mind. I'm going to come back to that. But the second tree that is highlighted is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil. And this will also be very, very important for us to understand. Now, if you can't, go ahead and jump down to verse 15. So after the creation of the garden, or the creation of man first, then the creation of the garden, God puts Adam into this garden. And here is where we actually give, God gives this instruction to Adam of what he is supposed to do there. And it says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and to keep it. That he is to work the garden and he is to keep the garden. Now, this is a covenant of sorts that God has just made with Adam. Now, we don't see that word covenant like we will see later on in the scriptures, but all of the ingredients are there. Because what is a covenant? What is a covenant that you read in throughout the Bible? Well, a covenant is a special relationship with God established by God that has blessing and obligations to it that will lead to life or death. We, you see covenants throughout Scripture. And I believe this is actually the first time we're seeing this, this covenantal nature between God and humanity come out in the text. And so we see that here with God and Adam. God is saying to Adam, I have given this all to you. This garden that I made, I'm giving it all to you. And if you work it and you keep it, the tree of life is present. So anything that you will ever need, you will have. But I want you to work it and keep it. I want you to, like any good garden, cultivate it, protect it. Even that language of work it and keep it, church, uh, elsewhere that's used in the Bible as the, the duties of a priest. That they are to guard and keep the sanctuary of God. And so in some way... Adam is challenged to be a priest of the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwells. Adam is given a, a priestly role in a lot of ways. But God does give that one prohibition. Right? And what is that prohibition? 
Look down at verse 17. It says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? So it gives him one prohibition. Right? A fullness of life with God. This wonderful paradise. Just with one caveat. Adam, I don't want you to eat from this tree. Because if you eat it from that tree, you will surely die. Now, we don't know if he's talking about physical death or, or spiritual death. But I think the answer is yes. We see them both play out afterwards. But why not eat of the tree, of this tree, right? Why not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why have that tree there if you can't eat it? Right? Why did God place that tree? What does that tree represent? If the tree of life represents the presence of God, what does this tree represent? Is God trying just to hold something back from Adam that's good? No, I don't think so at all. A helpful way to think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is it represented this moral autonomy. It represented what God and God alone has, and that is moral autonomy. The ability to know what is good and evil. That only belongs to God and God alone. Because he is the creator of all things. So he knows what is ultimately good. He also knows what is ultimately evil. And so this tree represents that. This moral autonomy, this, this omniscient power that only God and God alone possesses. And so the reason why I believe that God actually placed this tree in the garden is, is he wanted Adam to decide. Are you going to trust me in my provision for what is good and right? Or are you going to say, I don't need you. I don't actually trust what you think is good and right. right? There was a, almost a moral test, if you would. A moral understanding of what is going to be your greatest hope and where is your greatest trust going to lie? Now, throughout church history, this covenant, if you will, between Adam and God, um, it's known with a couple of different terms. Some refer to it as an Adamic covenant. Some refer to it as a covenant of works, which I actually think is actually a pretty helpful term based off of how this covenant then plays out, this covenant of works. Because what is God covenanting Adam to do? He's covenanting Adam to work and keep the garden because if he does that as a representation of all of humanity, that working and that keeping will actually lead to a fullness of life with the presence of God forever. And I believe that essentially the garden was intended to be paradise forever. It was intended to expand it was expended to grow. It was expended to welcome in all of God's creation. And if sin never entered into that perfect place, I believe it would have always resulted in everlasting life. Now, we all know that something went wrong, right? Because we're not there now, right? Nobody is arguing that we are still in paradise today. Something went wrong. We'll get to that. That's chapter 3. But we all could understand that something went wrong with that covenant, right? Something went wrong with Adam's duty, with Adam's obligation to have this work of his play out 
for the fruition of all of humanity. And it had major consequences. And the Bible talks about this. Let me show you one. In the book of Hosea, it's a minor prophet in the Old Testament. And talking about all the ways that God's people have sinned and rebelled against God, this is where Hosea connects it to. He goes back to the beginning. This is Hosea 6-7. When he says, But like Adam, they transgressed the what? The covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Basically what Hosea is saying is, when Adam failed to trust God, when Adam wanted moral autonomy more than he wanted God's provision and God's goodness and God's design, it brought sin into the world. And that sin then was passed down to every single person. So not only were you born into sin, but we say, that's not fair. Well, what have you done then? Have you proven elsewise? No, you haven't. Not only were we all born into sin, but then we also participated in sin ourselves, right? You guys have heard me talk about this. I did not have to teach my three-year-old twins to sin. They are very good at that naturally. Very good at that. Check out Mia's nose later on, okay? My oldest daughter. It's busted up from somebody in my family. Levi. It was Levi. You guys know this. But the Bible then traces Adam's sin, right? This, this failure on Adam's part all throughout humanity. And actually, the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament, he, he starts to connect this for the early church. He actually unpacks how this happened and what is the result of this even more so. And by the way, church, this is when the Bible starts really coming together as one cohesive book. And let me show you this. This is from Romans 5. The book of Romans chapter 5. It's going to be on page 942 if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles. But I want, to, I want you to see this starting in verse 12. Because this is where Paul takes what Adam did and where Jesus comes in. He connects Genesis 2 to the rest of the story of Scripture. And he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of, one, type of the one who was to come. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass, trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17. This is really good, church. It says, For if, because of one, one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. 
So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And our last verse, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now Paul basically was repeating the same thing over and over again. Right? You see what he was doing there? He was telling us that Jesus is the second and better Adam. Where through Adam, we all have failed. Where through Adam, sin came into the world. Where through Adam, we all participated in that sin. Like, well, that's not fair. That was one guy. Why did he get to represent us? Well, that's what God chose. But... God's answer to that one man bringing sin to all of us is to bring one man that can lead to justification and righteousness then for all of us. Right? The second and better Adam. So even though sin brought judgment to all of us, Jesus became what Adam could never be. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Right? Jesus became the greater high priest that Adam failed at. You think of even just the life of Jesus. Where Adam failed in the garden, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam failed to recognize that it's God's autonomy, it's God's goodness that will direct his life. Where Adam failed to do that, Jesus said in the garden, not my will be done, but your will. He recognized that God's plan is always better than whatever our plans could ever be. You see, maybe here's a a way to say this that you haven't thought about before. We are absolutely saved by works. We are absolutely saved by works. It's just not ours. It's the work of Christ. right? It's the work of the better second Adam. It's the work of Jesus that he did what Adam failed to do. So the covenant of works is ultimately then fulfilled in Christ. And by the way, that's why we celebrate the work in the life of Christ, not just his death. His death was needed, right? His death on the cross was for the atonement of our sins. It was to bear the judgment that our sin necessarily resulted in, right? That's what the cross was about. But why did Jesus then live, right? Why didn't he just show up and go to the cross? Because we needed his life. We needed his perfect life to then also be substituted or given to us. So we celebrate as a church the person, the work, and the death of Christ. We need it all. I think it's pretty cool. I don't know about you guys. Now, one last thing, and then we'll be done. Remember how I told you to remember the tree of life? That other tree in the garden? Because Genesis is actually not the last time we see the scriptures talk about this tree of life. We see the tree of life again in the book of Revelation. In the last book of the Bible. Where God, through the apostle John, is actually describing almost a new garden. It sounds like paradise recreated. The garden of Eden recreated. Heaven recreated created much like what we see here in Genesis 2. And let me point out a few of these verses. 
In Revelation 22, verse 2, it says, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding each its fruit. Or jump down to verse 14 of the same chapter. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Or in Revelation 22, verse 19, it says, And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in what? The tree of life. You see, the tree of life represents this fullness of life found in God. But what we see here in the book of Revelation that we don't necessarily see in Genesis as clearly is the only way that anyone can actually come to the tree of life is through a second Adam. Through Jesus Christ, who actually, see, actually guards, grants access to the tree of life. We don't have to earn it, right? We're not given also another covenant of works to go and be sinless. We're called to trust in the work of Christ, and it's him and him alone that actually grants us access to this. Because how do you end up here? How do you end up in front of the tree of life? Through Jesus Christ. That's the goal of all the Bible, right? It's trying to show you how it all plays out in the end. And so now, even as we look back at Genesis 2, where we don't see the name Jesus anywhere written, we see him foreshadowed. Right? We see what he would do better than the first Adam would do. And so all of the Bible is getting to, there is a day where we will experience the tree of life. We will experience the, the full experience, the physical, the moral, the spiritual life that's forever found in the presence of God. We will see that again. And so no matter how we are this morning, whether we're coming in beat up from the world, maybe not even quite sure where we're at, in our understanding of who Christ is or what he's done. Maybe we're just beat up because of sin, brokenness. Our bodies are failing. We see that the tree of life is one day going to be recreated. And there will be fullness there. That the sin that we experience today does not win in the end. And so we can approach this world knowing that we get him. This, this fruit that we get to experience one day will be fully realized. Have you guys ever seen the term throughout Scripture to taste and see that the Lord is good? Right? I think that's, also, there's, that's poetic language that we get to experience today. But I think there's also a reality to that. Right? A physical reality where we get to eat from the tree of life and actually taste and see that the Lord is good. That's coming. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I pray that you would see how Jesus is the second and better Adam. Of all the ways that God did not just abandon, even though we'll see later on how, how Adam failed miserably, right? He failed with his wife Eve miserably by eating of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. But God did not write off humanity. But he's always had this plan in place to bring us back to the garden. He knew what was going to happen when he gave the covenant to Adam. But there was already a covenant of God working all things according to his will. 
And so if you're not a Christian, I want you to become one. I want you to see that the sin in your life has just ruined uh, and has basically separated you from the presence of God. But through Jesus Christ, through believing in his person, right, his life, his death, turning from that sin and trusting in him, you will be able to experience the tree of life again. But it comes through him because the goal is him. Right? The goal is not a tree. The goal is always him. It only marks where he is. So let's go ahead and end there, church. And then next week we will finish out chapter 2. Well, Father, I want to just thank you that we get the, just the moment, the time, the ability, the freedom to be able just to sit and, and think and ponder out loud and with each other, the, the grandness and the beauty of who you are, Jesus, and what you have done. And God, I pray that, that we will continually grow in our knowledge of you. And God, just like Adam, who failed to trust you, right, to fail to realize that you're, you know best. We have all failed, right? We've all fallen short. We've all turned our back on you. We've all done things in which you've told us not to do. And God, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge our sin, but also want to acknowledge for those of us who know you, Lord, of the great cost then that you went to to atone for that sin. And that, God, that you lived a life that we couldn't live, and you didn't just take that for yourself, but rather that, that righteousness. You decided to embark and give and impute to us. And God, we thank you for that. So Lord, it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.